Mirror neurons are a special type of brain cell that were once thought to explain the brain basis of language and that of our understanding of the actions of other people, or action understanding. However, between the late 1990s and the early 2010s, neuroscientist Gregory Hickok crafted a devastating argument against these claims, culminating in his 2014 book, The Myth of Mirror Neurons, The Real Neuroscience of Communication and Cognition. His critiques contributed to a lively debate on the topic of mirror neurons, language, and action understanding. So what are mirror neurons? I'm Andrew Cooper Sansone, and this is the Thinking Tools Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Gregory Hickok about his book, as well as a sophisticated dual-stream model of speech and language processing in the brain, which he created with neuroscientist David Poppel. Dr. Hickok's research focuses on the neurobiology of language, speech, and hearing, with application to understanding the nature of acquired language disorders, aphasia. He's published over 190 scientific papers and book chapters, and edited several book volumes on the neurobiology of language and hearing. His research uses a multi-method approach, including functional MRI, electrocorticography, neuropsychology, and computational modeling, and it has been funded by the National Institutes of Health for the last three decades. Dr. Hickok was the inaugural chair of the Society for Neurobiology, founding director of UC Irvine's Center for Cognitive Neuroscience and Center for Language Science, and editor-in-chief of Psychonomic Bulletin and Review from 2014 to 2019. He received his PhD in psychology and linguistics at Brandeis University in 1991, did postdoctoral training in cognitive neuroscience at MIT and the Salk Institute for Biological Sciences. He joined the faculty at UC Irvine in 1996, where he is currently professor of cognitive sciences and language science. If you get anything out of this conversation, please consider liking and subscribing to the channel or podcast. Also consider giving this show a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you use. And finally, consider signing up for the weekly newsletter so you can get every video sent directly to your email inbox the day they're posted. If you're already signed up for the newsletter, please be on the lookout for a survey about the future of Sense of Mind that I'll be sending out soon. All right, thank you so much. Now, here is my conversation with Professor Gregory Hickok. All right, so I uh, I will have read your full bio for the audience, um, but before we jump into mirror neurons and language and, and the brain, um, can you just talk a little bit about why you decided to study neuroscience and, um, and language and everything else? Uh, sure. Um, I was kind of as an undergraduate on a clinical psychology path. Um, I come from a family of clinician types, dentists, nurses, things like that. And um, that seemed to be the direction that uh, my family went in. So that's kind of where I was headed. But I got interested in cognitive neuropsychology at the time um, was the, the, the dominant field. Um, and uh, it was a, a, a book by Oliver Sacks called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, where he described a lot of different and interesting neurological conditions in people who've suffered brain damage or other kinds of neurological disorders. And that got me really interested. So I switched um, from clinical psychology to um, cognitive psychology, just wanted to do something to do with the brain and behavior and uh, applied to a few different programs happened to get into one where there was someone working on language. And even though I wasn't particularly interested in language at the time, um, as an undergraduate anyway, I said, well, let's, this, is, this is a way in uh, to brain and behavior. So I started learning linguistics and um, got super fascinated. And it was kind of, kind of like that. So almost an accident um, that I ended up in the language field. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. Um, well, uh... Today, we're going to be talking a lot about um, this book. I apologize. I don't have the cover on it, but it is the, the myth of mirror neurons. I don't know if they can see that, but uh, <laughs> there it is. Um, and I just have to say, before we, we get started talking about it, it, as an undergrad, when I read this book, um, shortly after it came out, it was, it was very influential on me. I mean, at the time, there was a lot of, about mirror neurons and um, I had read many of the authors that you reference in the book, and uh, I just have to say it was it was really kind of a, an intoxicating uh, look at kind of the logic of how the brain works and and the actual mechanics of some of the things that you discuss in the book. Um, 
So I guess I think a good way for, for people to get a handle on what, what it's about and um, your thesis in that book is for maybe for you to describe uh, what are mirror neurons and how are they first discovered? So mirror neurons were discovered in macaque monkeys initially uh, in the early 90s. Um, and uh, it was a group in Parma, Italy, who was studying um, motor control, like how, you know, how we reach for objects, essentially. And we're, that's a very interesting topic. Didn't grab the attention of the world like mirror neurons, but it's, it's uh, an interesting uh, problem, how we use information about object shape um, to guide our actions toward those objects. So think of reaching and picking up your phone or a cup or a pen or something like that. And we tend to pre-shape our hand appropriately to the orientation and size of the object. And the researchers in Parma led by Giacomo Rizzolatti were uh, studying the neurophysiology of that process. And so they had monkeys um, uh, reaching for different objects and they were recording brain signals from frontal motor related areas in the monkeys um, and making some important discoveries. It's fascinating work. Um, it was kind of an accident that they discovered mirror neurons and essentially what they were doing was the apparatus was such that there was a little kind of box that the monkeys would reach into um, to grab these objects and in between trials, the experimenters would reach in and grab one object out and put another one in. Um, and meanwhile, they're just recording from these neurons in the brain and you can kind of hear it in the lab is the way that it typically goes. Um, and so they noticed that these cells started firing while the monkeys were simply observing the experimenters move these objects in and out of the little box um, that they were using. And that was odd because no one had reported or seen um, responses in frontal motor areas to the perception of actions. Yes, if you show a monkey an object or something that it can reach for, you will find activation of these neurons um, just just by viewing these objects, but no one had seen it with respect to um, actions, observing actions. And so they decided to study them. And what they found was that there were um, uh, cells, uh, neurons in certain regions of the monkey brain, an area called F5, um, which is the homologue to our Broca's area, if you're familiar with that, or thought to be. Um, and uh, they showed not only responses while the monkey was reaching for and grasping objects, but also while the, the same neurons, also while they were observing actions. Oftentimes, um, the, the type of action and grasping or whatever that, that a, a cell responded to during execution was similar to that which uh, it responded best to in observation. And it's as if the cells were mirroring, um, you know, the, the action um, as they were perceiving it in their brain. And that, that's what a mirror neuron is. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, from that, you know, you might not expect uh, what came next. So what, what was that initial interpretation by the Parma group um, of, of what the function of these neurons were in terms of um, action understanding and, and language. Yeah, well, um, the, initial, the initial interpretation was something a little bit different than uh, the popularized interpretation. So the very first impulse of the researchers was to interpret it as a, a response that was important for guiding actions. And that was kind of consistent with their work on reaching and grasping of objects. Um, so in that, so it's helpful to kind of go over that, that part first. Um, so th they would present different kinds of objects to the monkeys and they would reach for them. And some of them were kind of elongated, some of them were round. And they would find that, you know, of course, as you're reaching for an elongated um, object, you would tend to use a, you know, maybe a grip like this. Whereas if you're reaching for an orange size thing, you'll reach with a whole hand grip like that. And they found that there were different neurons tuned to different grips. So one neuron would prefer a, a little pincher grip, another neuron would prefer a whole hand grip and so on. Um, and so the interpretation of that fact was that the object shape and size and orientation and such was providing input to a motor selection process where you're using the shape of the object to choose the appropriate grip 
and they thought of it as kind of like a, a grasping vocabulary. You had a vocabulary of different grasp types that you could select from uh, appropriate for the object that you were about to grasp. So um, if you find then, so that's the context, if you find a neuron that responds to actions and they're kind of intermixed with these object related ones in this area, um, the natural interpretation is that something similar is going on, right? So there, you know, you see an action and you use that action it, to guide your own action. So you're perceiving one, one animal or one person's um, action and using that to select an appropriate response. So, you know, an obvious thing in the case of us humans is if I reach my hand out like this, you know, a natural response for you would be to mirror that and to shake my hand, right? Um, so that, that would be a kind of interpretation. It was an action selection process. And that was the very first publication in 1992, I believe it was. They considered that as a possible explanation. However, there was a problem with that interpretation. So while humans are quite facile at imitating other humans, so if I you know, scratch my face, it's very easy for you to mimic that and do the same thing. A handshake is a kind of mirror gesture. Um, humans are good imitators, and, and mirror neurons seem to be well-suited for an imitation kind of function, right? Because they seem, at least some of them, seem to code uh, similar relationships between the execution and observation uh, responses. Um, but macaques don't imitate like that. Um, and so the researchers were reasonably left with the strange situation where there are these cells that seem to be tuned to imitation, to, to copying a movement. Um, but the animals never executed that behavior. And so they were saying, well, it can't be that. And that's a very reasonable thing to say. Um, what else could it be? And they hit on the idea that it, it was a, kind of an internal mechanism for understanding actions. That is, that if I want to understand an action that you've executed, like picking up a, you know, a grape or something, the way I do that is I simulate that action in my own motor system. And since I know what I'm doing when I execute actions, I can then understand what you're doing by simulating it in myself. So the ultimate interpretation that came out in the second pub publication um, was that these cells, the, the mirroring function was used for action understanding in, in monkeys. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it sounds pretty reasonable on its face um, until you start to dive into the specifics of how that would really work. And um, you outline in the book a number of anomalies that popped up throughout the course of people doing research on mirror neurons. And um, a couple of those I found, I thought were, were particularly damning for the, the mirror neuron theory of action understanding. Um, and maybe we could, I could uh, just list these and, and you could talk a little bit about them. Um, so the first one is speech perception can occur without engaging the motor speech system. Yeah, so um, very early on, once mirror neurons were discovered, and remember they were discovered in monkeys, not humans, um, but we study monkeys uh, in the hopes of not just understanding how monkeys work, but in hopes of understanding how we work. And since monkeys are a distant relative of ours, the idea is that our brains will have some similarities, some homologies. Um, so having discovered these mirror neuron cells, um, the researchers reasonably wondered whether humans have something similar. Um, and the idea of mirror neurons was extrapolated not only to humans in terms of action understanding, like in understanding gestures and grasping and things, but other kinds of actions like speech. Um, and so uh, the idea was that uh, maybe how we perceive speech, which is a kind of action, right, is that we simulate the movements uh, that would be associated with generating those same speech sounds. And that is the way we perceive speech or understand language. So that's the logic of it. Um, this theory was actually proposed in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s by a group in Haskins um, labs in uh, Connecticut. Um, and it was called the motor theory of speech perception. And it was a very interesting theory. Um, we, you know, it was unclear how humans actually perceive speech, and that's still a topic of research today. 
but the Haskins group for for you know good reasons came up with the idea that maybe we perceive it in terms of the motor gestures that we use to produce speech. And this was a viable hypothesis and it was thoroughly investigated in the 60s, 70s and 80s and and by the by the 80s it had been rejected. It had been proven false essentially. Um, for various reasons, um, for example, um, you know, it was shown that that infants who can't produce speech can nonetheless perceive speech, that chinchillas who can't don't have the biological capacity for speech can nonetheless perceive speech sounds quite well, and so on. Um, and so it had been discredited, but now mirror neurons had come around in it and the idea was revived. Um, but it was essentially the same idea. So, you know, that the anomaly that I pointed out is just an anomaly that had been, you know, noticed over the last few decades before mirror neurons were discovered, showing that, um, yeah, we don't really need a motor system in order to perceive speech. And since mirror neurons were discovered, um, more research on that topic has been carried out. Um, for example, uh, people with severe cerebral palsy who have never been able to control their speech um, can nonetheless perceive speech sounds perfectly normally. Um, and uh, my own research in um, uh, language disorders as a result of stroke has confirmed that result. You damage the motor system in various ways, and it doesn't seem to interrupt our, the ability to perceive speech sounds. So that's a problem for mirror neuron theory, at least as it's applied to speech. Um, you know, it still could theoretically or, you know, logically be the case that it doesn't work for speech, but it works for action understanding and in, in, you know, for grasping, but at least in the speech case, um, that didn't seem to apply. And so was there a, a similar finding that um, we can understand actions more generally without engaging the motor system? Yeah, so um, there's a there's a whole field of gesture recognition and, and, and a phenomenon called limb apraxia, um, which is a typically a stroke induced deficit where a person um, can move. There's, it's not a loss of motor control, but the loss of the ability to produce gestures uh, voluntarily kind of on command. And it's usually more exaggerated when people are asked to pantomime gestures um, and things like that. So a typical limb apraxia assessment might be, you know, show me how you would uh, salute or show me how you would brush your teeth. Um, and so on. And people will, you know, kind of maybe if they're trying to brush their teeth, they kind of like, you know, make odd movements or maybe use their finger as a toothbrush and not quite get it right. Um, and then you can, so if someone has a, has a deficit in that ability, you can ask whether they have a similar deficit in comprehending action. So do you understand what this action means or, you know, this action means? Um, and in general, a lot of times in, in the stroke-based work, you can find some correlations between different abilities like perceiving and executing actions. Um, but correlations, as we all know, are not cause causation. It's not always causation. And you can find notable dissociations in the ability. That is people who have trouble executing the actions but not perceiving them. And um, uh, yeah, so, so those kinds of, of phenomena were documented. And, just kind of common experience if someone like has cerebral palsy say um and can't control their limbs does that mean that they can't understand the actions of you know other people no not necessarily um furthermore um you know we we understand the actions of lots of creatures um that we can't mimic uh say the flight of birds the coiling of a snake the jet propulsion of a squid um, those are actions that we can understand, but we have no way to ar articulate those um, those motor actions. And so, you, again, you don't really need the motor capacity to execute an action to understand what it is. Right. Yeah. And and that whole line of counter evidence seemed to just blow a giant hole through the the theory. Um, but another uh, anomaly I just wanted to touch on was that you said that mirror neurons are functional outliers in the organization of cortical systems. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so that has to do with um, 
the way that sensory systems are organized, sensory and motor systems are organized. So it's been recognized for um, over a hundred years that the brain is organized in terms of two broad streams of information processing. So from the perspective of perceiving the environment and acting on it. Um, so there's uh, what's often referred to as a ventral stream, ventral because it involves the ventral or more inferior parts of the brain and the temporal lobe. Um, that seems to be more involved in recognizing what things are. Um, so this was, uh, off, it's often talked about in terms of visual processing. So if you're, you know, you can think of the ability to recognize an object um, and uh, it doesn't really matter where that object is in space or what size it is, or whether it's a cartoon drawing of it or a real thing, or whether it's partly occluded and so on. Um, you can still recognize as a cup, a cup as a cup, say, um, and uh, that seems to involve uh, neural systems in the ventral, temporal, occipital, temporal regions. Um, uh, the ability to interact with that object motorically, though, is uh, involves a different stream. That is a dorsal stream uh, involving the more superior parts of the brain, um, and there the the you don't really have to understand what it is. If you see an object, um, it could be some kind of nonsense objects that you don't recognize. You're like, hey, what's this? I don't know what this is. But based on its shape and its orientation and its size and its location, you can still interact with it motorically. You can pick it up. You know, Imagine you're in the woods and you see a funky thing on the ground and you're like, what is that? And you reach down and pick it up and you grab it and you look at it. You still don't know what it is. You can't categorize it semantically but you can still interact with it. So those are two kinds of different systems in the brain. One for recognizing objects um, where the particular size and location and orientation don't matter that much. Um, and another system that is involved in uh, interacting with that, that object, uh, with the, interacting with it with your motor system. And there, it doesn't matter as much what it is, it matters more um, what it's, particular size is, how close is it to you, what's its location, what's its orientation, and so on. And that is what guides your actions towards it. So those two systems are um, functionally very different. They, they require different kinds of computations or operations to arrive at those two bits of information that you need. And they involve different brain circuits, a more dorsal and a more ventral. Well, it turns out that mirror neurons are in this dorsal system, this system that is not um, particularly necessary in general for recognizing what things are. Um, and so that's the sense that they are an anomaly. So it doesn't, you know, there's no hard and fast rules in the brain. Things could be, there could be outliers. It could be that there is a key, what kind, what is that action system in the dorsal part of the brain? That's feasible. Um, but since it violates other things that we know about how the brain is organized, we're going to need some really strong evidence to, to believe that. And so that's what I meant by that being an outliner, an outlier functionally. Yeah, yeah. And there are there are a few other several other no anomalies that you mentioned. Um, and but for now, I, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned the dual stream models, um, because I want to return to that when we talk a little bit about um, your work in the uh, neuroscience of auditory, or sorry, um, speech and uh, language processing. Um, but just before we leave mirror neurons entirely, um, what's your sense of the current state of research on mirror neurons? Are they, have there been any discoveries that kind of challenge your, your view of them or is it still pretty much the same? Um, research continues and in, including in my own lab we're trying to understand you know is this idea really you know how solid is it and so we we've studied it from the perspective of speech uh, and language a bit um none none of what i've seen come out since i published the book in 2014 has challenged the basic critique um it, everything that's been coming out supports it in general the way that the the research has gone so the original claim was pretty um dramatic that action understanding is based enabled by these mirror neurons and without them you can't do it that was kind of the vibe that that this line of work was being you know kind of promoting or at least many people interpreted it that way um 
since then, a much more moderate view of these of these systems has been um, taken up and investigated. So most people who think that mirror neurons or something like it are doing something for perception and understanding these days would argue instead that it's kind of an enhancement of perception, not so much the basis of perception or understanding, but it just augments it in one way or another. And so some of the work now is just trying to understand if, if that's true, number one, and number two, if it is true, by how much does it augment it? And we've, we've made some measurements in the speech domain where we uh, try to interfere with um, the motor speech system in various ways and then ask how much um, does your ability to perceive speech sounds decline? Um, and we can find evidence of some uh, reduction in the ability to perceive speech sounds under some conditions. And they're very kind of atypical conditions, like listening to speech in a very noisy environment where you, you're just on the border of being able to detect what the sound is. Under those conditions, if you occupy the speech motor system, um, you can show a very slight reduction in um, performance. And um, it's the equivalent of one or two decibel changes. Like if you bumped the volume up on the speech by one decibel or two decibels, that would be sufficient to get rid of the effect of the motor system. That, that's all. In other words, it's a very small, um, a small contribution and only under these odd conditions. Wow. Okay. Well, well that's really good to know. Um, now you've, you've kind of touched on some of this stuff about, uh, your recent, uh, paper is, I guess, a, a chapter in the, uh, handbook of neurology about the dual stream model of speech and language perception. So you talked a little bit about dual stream models in general. Um, can you talk a little bit, well, I guess maybe a, a good way to approach this would be talking about what was the the classical model of language and speech perception um, and what was yours designed, what problems was yours designed to solve? Yeah, so um, the classical model was actually very similar to the model that I've proposed, this dual stream model. And it's a very, it's not a detailed model at all. It's a very general kind of architecture of the system. Um, and again, it's based on this idea that um, that there's a difference between systems involved in understanding or, or understanding what it is that, that you're sensing in the environment versus um, motorically interacting with it. So I kind of made that case with respect to objects in the environment. There's, you know, on, on one hand, you need to be able to recognize what it is. On the other hand, you need to be able to um, interact with it by, say, grasping it or doing something. And those are different kinds of things. Um, so these notions were being developed with respect to vision predominantly and, you know, reaching, grasping, or moving your eyes to look at something. Um, my collaborator, David Popple, and I uh, noticed that this applies nicely to speech as well. So if you think about what you're doing now, you're listening to uh, acoustic signals in the environment and you're able to understand what it is that I'm saying. You're under, able to understand the content of, of what I'm saying. But at the same time, that's not the only thing you need to be able to do with speech that you're hearing. You need to be able to uh, reproduce it with your own motor system, your own motor speech system. So um, a lot of that you know, happens in development where, you, where a young kid is hearing a bunch of speech coming in and, and they need to understand what they're they're, the people around them are saying that's one thing, but they also need to figure out how to talk themselves and how to reproduce the speech sounds and words in the language that they're hearing. So, so those are the two kinds of, of um, mappings that need to happen, mapping an acoustic in, uh, speech information onto concepts or you know, understanding versus mapping that, those speech patterns onto your own motor system so that you, you can reproduce them. Certainly in development, that's a big deal. That's a lot of, you know, a lot of what kids are working on trying to, to learn, but it doesn't go away as adults. So, you know, I can ask you to repeat a nonsense word like GORP and you can reproduce it. And that could be a new 
term that I'm teaching you and you need to be able to figure out how to map it onto your own speech motor system to reproduce it. If you're learning a foreign language, obviously you're going to have to figure out, you know, here's a sound pattern. How do I say that word? And so you're, that's, that's one task. The other task is to comprehend it. And we all know if you try to learn a second language, oftentimes understanding it is easier than producing it um, yourself. Um, and that's a function of the different tasks that are required. So, so the, the dual stream model is essentially an application of this general principle of brain organization into a ventral um, sensory to concept mapping versus a sensory to motor mapping. Um, that concept applied to speech is essentially the dual stream model. Um, yeah, and that, it is just really fascinating. I mean, I, I don't think we'll have time to really get into all of it. Um, there's a lot there, but um, as I kind of wanted to debunk some myths or just talk, have you talk a little bit about um, some of these common ideas that people have, like, for example, in, you know, a neuroscience 101 course, or hopefully not anymore, but you might learn that language is on the left side of the brain. And um, your, your and David Popple's theory shows why that's flawed. And um, so can you explain that a little bit and, and maybe talk about how speech and language is generally organized in the brain? Um, yeah, in any way you want to take that question. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the the, um, the language equals left hemisphere dogma is um, old and entrenched, and it's hard to, um, you know, to, to kind of uh, set the record straight, essentially. And one of the reasons why, you know, it's so popular is it's partly true. So if you have left hemisphere damage, like from a stroke, um, most people, if you have damage in the right, you know, the correct part of the brain uh, that, that where language is involved, um, you're going to end up with something called aphasia, which is a, a disorder of the speech and language um, uh, that'll make it difficult to talk. Uh, and and it, it's a devastating um, disorder. Uh, it affects a lot of people. Um, very few people know about it relatively, um, even though it's about as common as multiple sclerosis or you know, other kinds of diseases, Parkinson's disease, schizophrenia, uh, diseases that we've heard about. Um, uh, so you, and you do typically get that from left hemisphere damage. So that, that is a fact. Um, with right hemisphere damage, language problems are not particularly common. So there's pretty strong evidence for a left dominance for language. However, if you look carefully, um, looks like my video is frozen, sorry. Oh, that's okay. I can I'm looks back. like it's back now. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you look at different language functions, so language isn't just one thing. There are different tasks and different things that we have to do in language. And the most obvious biggest difference is, is listening and comprehending versus speaking, which kind of differentially taxes these two streams that I've been talking about. And it turns out that the ability to produce speech uh, is much more left dominant than the ability to comprehend it. Um, and so that uh, the what we've been promoting is the idea that the asymmetry or left dominance of language is not as um, uh, it's not uniform across all language functions. That it's more a production thing and less a comprehension thing. Particularly the early stages of perceiving speech sounds um, seems to be quite. Uh, bilateral. Um, so that's the, that's the, the dominance claim. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess this next question is, is really more about, um, the neuroscience of language in general, maybe not particular to your uh, model, but one thing I, I found fascinating in the myth of mirror neurons was the idea of predictive coding, um, in terms of, of motor actions. Can you explain how that is involved in language and speech perception? <laughs> yeah, so predictive coding is a it's a um, it's a fascinating topic, uh, and it's you know when I started looking into mirror neurons and studying speech production, um, you know th there's a whole world of of research on motor control, and this is obviously important for fields like robotics and engineering, so where you're trying to build robots that can do things like reach out and grab something and give it to you, say. Um, and it turns out that 
um, generating actions is a complicated thing. You'd think it was it was simple to to get a robot to reach and grab something, um, but motor actions are actually quite complicated in a fascinating way. And I can take a minute to kind of explain that to you. Um, so imagine you're you know you're at your favorite coffee shop and the the barista behind the bar puts your coffee cup on the counter for you to pick up and you start reaching for it and right when you start reaching for it he or she kind of just nudges it a little bit towards you so now you've identified an object that you want to interact with motorically you want to grasp it and you've initiated an action towards it and you're pre-shaping your hand you got the right trajectory and if nothing went wrong presumably you could reach and grab it with your eyes closed even you know you kind of you, you you've nailed this sensory motor learning task quite well um, but now it moves so now you have a problem you have to recalibrate your reach to hit the new target and you have to do it without you know fumbling over the counter or, um, you know doing these sorts of things the problem that the brain faces in such, what seems to be such a simple task is that as you're reaching the the sensory information that you're getting about the change of your target um, takes a while to get to your brain so it, you know it has to get past your eyes into the back of your brain and then get processed and this can take you know up to 100 milliseconds now think how far your hand has moved in 100 milliseconds um, it's not in the same location it was when the movement actually happened. So your brain has to take into account the fact that the movement occurred previously in time and make an adjustment going forward in time um, with that and, and making it smoothly. So in a sense, in a sense, all the information we're getting about the targets that we're reaching for, the actions that were generated, are actually in the past because our brain doesn't directly sense the present it detects information that's about 100 milliseconds old and you know for sitting on the couch and doing little it doesn't much matter 100 milliseconds but if you're reaching for a moving target that matters 100 milliseconds is a big deal um, so that's the computational problem that the brain faces it's it's almost like trying to drive a car while looking in the rearview mirror you're only getting information from what you've passed and trying to predict what to do in the future. And that's a complicated problem. And so you've ever seen these robots who are trying to reach for things and they, you know, they're failing, like they, they'll kind of have this jerky movement as they're sensing something and, oh, I got to change. Humans don't do that. We're much smoother and can grab things. Um, and so the, the engineering solution to that and what humans and other animals seem to be able to do is to build an internal model of the world. So at with lots of experience grabbing moving coffee cups, say, we're, we're able to predict ahead of time what uh, where that thing might be and how a new motor program, an adjustment to the motor program will affect our movements. So we're able to plan a movement and then predict its consequences before it actually happens. And once you can do that, then you have you have a leg up in the timing of your actions um, and you don't have to wait for sensory feedback to make adjustments necessarily you can make predictions about where your limb is going to be in 100 milliseconds and use that prediction to make the adjustments instead of waiting for the actual feedback so this is called um, predictive coding or basically making predictions as to what you'd expect to be happening and it's been developed in motor, motor control, but it's also been applied to other aspects of brain function so. Um, things like if you're um, you know just sensing something you can make predictions about what that thing you're sensing is going to do it might not it's going to stay stationary or if it's moving it's going to continue along a trajectory and you can make predictions about you know what you're seeing and some people have argued that the brain is essentially a prediction machine and most of what it's re registering as information gets processed is deviations from the predictions that it makes um so uh yeah so that's that's the general idea of prediction in in the language world um kind of the models that i've been working on are such that as we're producing speech, we have two phases, uh, two components of the production process. One is activating the targets that we're trying to produce. So if I you know, show you an, 
an image like this. This is my, you, you can come up with the name of what this thing is. That would be a smartphone. That was a smartphone, right? So the, you've activated a concept and then the next stage in that is to activate a, um, the sound pattern that you wanna produce, smartphone, that sequence of syllables. And you develop a motor plan that will execute uh, an action, a gestural action with your mouth that will produce that sound pattern. Part of the planning process on the motor side is to make sure that what you're planning is actually gonna hit the target that you've activated, the sensory target. And so that is a internal prediction process where you, as you're planning it, a signal gets sent to areas that are involved in the uh, coding of the target, which are sensory related areas near auditory cortex. The, plan is checked against the target. If it matches, great. You can go ahead and say uh, smartphone. If it doesn't match, if you're going to say something else, then you can uh, send a correction signal and correct the motor plan and then execute it. And there's evidence from uh, stroke and other kinds of conditions where you can have damage to the system that does this internal checking and people will make a lot of speech errors they will you know say things like it's a cokey it's a chuck it's a it, no it's a and they'll struggle to generate the right word because they're not able to do this correction process before they produce speech um so that's that's the kind of application of this predictive process that seems to be operating while, wow. while you and I are talking. Wow. So it, it's kind of a, a verbal template that you're trying to match to some extent. Yeah, kind of, you know, like, like I said, if you're, if you're trying to generate a word like smartphone, um, it's not just the idea, the concept of smartphone being mapped directly onto a motor pattern. You're, you take the concept and then you activate a target, the sound pattern that you've learned, smartphone, and, and you're also simultaneously activating a motor plan that should hit that target. And then you're, as you're planning, you're comparing the two. You're making sure that the motor plan is gonna hit the target that you intend it to hit. Um, and you can check it before you even produce speech uh, and correct it if it's not quite right. And, that presume so the idea here is that when we're generating motor plans if we didn't have that correction mechanism we'd make a lot more errors than we would if you know if we didn't have it um, and that seems to be what happens in certain forms of aphasia where that correction mechanism is unavailable um, or damaged so people will tend to make a lot of speech errors you know, wow. some of them slip by in us. We make speech errors all the time, but it turns out if you measure how frequently we do it, it's only about 1% of our utterances contain these spoonerisms or slips of the tongue, uh, which is quite rare given how complicated speech is. Um, but if you damage this correction system, the, the rate goes up. Um, and yeah, that seems to be what, what's reflected there. Wow. Wow. Um, and so is that, that system is, am I right in saying it's in the premotor cortex or the premotor cortex is involved or did I get that wrong? Yeah, so the, the two components seem to be, one, uh, the motor planning component seems to be in the, in the left frontal lobe predominantly. So that's a, that's a component that's left dominant. Um, and that is, you know, we're still trying to work on where those systems are. So it might be premotor cortex, um, parts of Broca's area may be involved. Um, uh, so yeah, that's the motor planning component in the, in the frontal lobe. The auditory based targets, that is these kind of, it's, think of it as your memories for how words should sound. Um, and that seems to be coded in um, like the posterior temporal lobe. Um, if you're familiar with, you know, classical language anatomy, that would be something similar to Wernicke's area. Um, and then in between, there is a kind of uh, network that does the communication, the translation between the two. And that's an area that um, we We think part of that network is an area we discovered that we've called SPT, which is right at the back of the main fissure, the sylvian fissure in the temporal, um, that divides the temporal lobe from the parietal and frontal lobes. 
And so those are the networks. There's two, there's the, the place that stores the sensory codes for how words should sound, um, and a place that stores the motor codes for how to reproduce that, and then a translation network to simplify it quite substantially. We well, appreciate that. Thank you. Um, no, um, all right. Well, I, uh, I have a couple of general questions I want to ask you um, a bit, bit selfishly. I'm, I'm doing a project on the prefrontal cortex, and I wanted to see if what, if any, uh, is the role of the prefrontal cortex in language, speech processing, or other aspects of, of uh, those sorts of things? Is there anything definitive you can say about it? Mm, prefrontal cortex. I always think of prefrontal cortex as above my pay grade. It's that that's where things get really complicated up in the front of the brain that, you know, it's been implicated in all the, those high level things like, you know, problem solving and, you know, controlling all these other, you know, these other lower level systems that I, I feel like I can understand a little bit better. Um, so I don't have a huge amount to say about prefrontal cortex. I don't study it much. Um, so I'm afraid I, I can't help you too much on the prefrontal cortex. No, no problem, no problem. Um, all right, well, now I, uh, I just have some even more general questions. And this one, I, I do apologize for how general it is, but I've been asking my guests um, this question because I want to try to give people basically what I'd like is if you can give a kind of elevator pitch answer to the question, how does the brain work? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, it is, uh, it's complicated. Um, basically it's, you know, it's, it's, it's doing, um, a kind of, there's a lot of different answers to that. I think, um, I, I'm not sure that there's a simple elevator pitch answer. Um, certainly there's a lot of, of network connectivity that drives it. So we used to think, so maybe I'll just go down this road. We used to think that it was kind of a bunch of separate areas that were doing their own thing and coordinating, you know, uh, separate behaviors, one area for one thing. There was a language network, there was a, you know, whatever else network. Um, these days we understand that it's a lot more dynamic. Um, than, uh, than we used to think. There's lots of interconnectivity, um, complex behaviors, um, which is basically anything from perception to action to language to thinking, involve multiple nodes in a network. Um, and it's hard uh, to ascribe any given function to a single area because the same area can be doing slightly different things depending on the network that it's connected to. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one big revelation that, that has happened over the, you know, the last century or so um, in terms of our understanding of how the brain works. Um, but, you know, there's, there's other debates. There's, there's a lot of interest right now in, these, in um, this process called uh, neural oscillations, which our brains oscillate. Um, an individual neuron will not just sit, you know, silent and then turn on when it gets stimulated and then shut off it'll it'll kind of pulse um continuously and then change its pulsation rate or change its the phase of its pulsation um uh, depending on what's going on around it and different brain regions will synchronize in their pulsation so typically we measure these things in in groups of neurons and networks that tend to oscillate together and synchronize and desynchronize and so a lot of people are really interested in what role these uh, oscillations are are playing in um, in brain function and coordination between different brain areas. Um, so you know that's a big question um, concerning how brains work that people are investigating. Um, I tend to emphasize um, brain architectures. Um, so I think of you know you think of artificial intelligence for example, and um, those are networks that are you basically doing pattern association. So you give it some input, you train it on some input, and then you can get an answer. You can get some output. What is this? What is this pattern likely um, representing? Think of automated driving systems or automated speech recognition systems, and so on. Well, uh, 
these networks rely on large numbers of units that are connecting to other units and then there's hidden layers that kind of map do these complex nonlinear mappings. Um, one of the interesting things that's come out of this work is that the network, the architecture of the network itself, how many layers you have, how many, how are they connected, what are the feedback loops, uh, all these sorts of things matter a lot in the performance of the network. And so um, one of the things that I've been interested in um, is trying to figure out the network architecture for systems that I'm interested in, like language is my thing, um, speech and language. So I spend a lot of time trying to understand the architecture and that dorsal versus ventral dual stream thing is one example of that. Um, that's a kind of architecture. Um, there is That's a very broad kind of architecture. The other work that I've been doing is aimed at trying to, to to detail other parts of the architecture. So those sensory motor loops that I talked about with a sensory target and a motor planning circuit and a thing in between, that's a, a, a finer grained architecture. Um, and um, so I think my, my kind of emphasis in my research is that we're gonna learn a lot about brain function if we can understand its architecture because the structure of the system, how, what parts are interacting with each other is going to be an important part of the story in terms of how brains work, not just in the tendency for um, things to oscillate together or um, you know whatever. So that that I would say is probably these days a kind of neglected aspect of brain organization and function that um, that I think is going to contribute a lot to our understanding of how the brain works. How's that? Long that's, elevator ride. That's <laughs> a good one. Yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. Perfect. Um, all right. Well, uh, another very general question, and this is one I think that just a lot of people who haven't spent too much time thinking about the brain mind relationship. Um, what is like, what is the difference between the brain and the mind? I guess that's the easiest way to put it. Um, how, how would you describe that? It's sometimes kind of difficult to, uh, get that across, I think, to people. Yeah, well, the astonishing hypothesis, as Francis Crick put it in his book, is the idea that there is no difference, that the brain is just the hardware or the software, uh, the wetware uh, of the mind, that it is fully a function of, of brain, um, you know, brain systems and their operation. Um, I, I think that the biggest difference is is just in terms of the levels or approaches to studying it. So we can study uh, the mind as a computational system. And by that, I mean a system that is processing information in the purpose of solving problems that need to be solved. Like how do we recognize objects? How do we, um, you know, uh, socially communicate? Um, all, the, all the different things that we do as humans can be studied as mental phenomenon, as cognitive phenomenon. Um, in quite independently of the of the brain itself, you know, we can study it with behavioral tools and other kinds of things. Um, but then, if we want to study the implementation of that, like how what what is the biology behind those abilities, then we can study the brain um, with the full understanding that the mind is just a product of the brain. But you know, it's you know, it, at this stage, studying the brain doesn't tell us a huge amount about the mind yet. Um, it can tell us, like my approach is, like I said, is to study the architecture of brain systems as they relate to mental systems like language. Um, and I think that that contributes a bit to understanding how language works, but it's not the most direct approach. Um, to, if you really want to understand language or something you know, cognitive, the most direct approach is to study it as a cognitive psychologist or you know, studying you know, principles of behavior and how it, how it works on that level, as opposed to trying to get into the, the neuroscience of it. Um, but I'm interested in the relation, so I'm studying both. Um, uh, yeah, so, so no difference uh, would be the answer, except levels of explanation, I guess. Right, right. All right, well, now I'm gonna get uh, really selfish and ask you some questions about writing about the brain. Um, so if, if Someone, well, actually, yeah, let's, let's start with that. So what's your, your general advice for science writers or fellow scientists when they're writing about the brain for a general audience? Um, one thing is don't assume that people know 
what you're talking about. So this is a, you know, oftentimes you'll read a, a science book or even go to a, a lecture that is, you know, an undergraduate lecture. Um, it's easy to assume that people know what you're talking about um, just because it's so familiar to you. And this happens, you know, I've been, I've been uh, a university professor since 1996. And I remember the early days when I was teaching, since I had just come through graduate school and I was learning all this stuff and it was, things were new to me. And I was like, oh, I don't understand this concept. I have to figure this out. And then once it gets familiar to you, it's, it's easy to forget that people just coming into the field don't know about that stuff. So I remember specifically in the early days as a young professor, um, that uh, I would take a lot of time to explain, you know, details that I didn't think people would know, but I find myself assuming that people know things um, these days and I fight that I want to make sure that to bring everyone in on the ground level, essentially. Um, so that's, I, I mean, I think that's, that's one um, principle to, to make sure you're, um, you're explaining the what seem to be obvious details to your audience. Yeah, that's, I, I know exactly what you mean about that. I think uh, Steven Pinker and others have called it the curse of knowledge mm -hmm. because you know what you know, but you can't remember how hard it was to learn that in the first place, but that's great advice. Um, and it comes across in the book. I will say that uh, it is very clear and, and, at the time, I did not know much about the brain when I was reading it, so it was very helpful. Um, now, uh, what if, if if somebody could read only one book about the brain, and preferably not a textbook, what would you recommend? And feel free to say the myth of mirror neurons if you want. <laughs> a book about the brain or the mind? The or... brain or the mind, or or however you think would be you know a, a good way for someone to understand human behavior and, and, or, or neuroscience or what's the most crucial book? Um, you know, I really like Robert Sapolsky's book. Um, I'm blanking on the name uh, of it. Behave. Behave. One. Yes. Thank you. Um, I think that's a really fantastic, uh, wide ranging kind of, um, book to understand, um, brain and behavior at multiple levels. Um, so that's, I, I think that's optimal. Uh, in terms of an approach to really understanding the, the brain slash mind, um, because it, it is hard to understand on any single level. You can study neurons and synapses and, and even brain systems in terms of their you know structure and, and so on. And it doesn't really tell you much about how things work. And then you can study um, you know, mental behaviors and that that gets you somewhere, but the the relationship between them is kind of obscure. Um, and I'm also a big proponent of the evolutionary uh, approach is think about, you know, where these brains came from and how did they evolve to solve particular problems um, and applying that information to um, behaviors as well. There's a whole field of behavioral genetics, for example, that um, talks about genetic uh, kind of foundations or um, correlations with um, certain abilities. Um, and there's a really great book on that topic by... Um, uh, Mitchell called innate, which is, I think, very good on behavioral genetics. Um, so, uh, and then Pinker's book on kind of the evolutionary approach approaches to understanding, uh, um, full disclosure, Pinker was my postdoc advisor. So I have some connection. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there's, there's a range of things that, um, that I think are useful, but the big picture is what is important. You're not going to get, um, a really good understanding of the brain or the mind from any one approach. So looking at it from multiple angles is really helpful. Well, that is one of the purposes of these interviews. And um, look, I, I really appreciate your time, Greg, being here and uh, answering all my questions. Um, yeah, I, I, I really just had a great time here. I, I wonder if you can point people to where they can find you or your work or, or however you want. Yeah. Easiest way to find me is on Twitter. Um, probably, um, if you just Google my name, you'll find, uh, you know, my email and stuff at UC Irvine. Um, but I'm, I'm on Twitter pretty regularly talking about, you know, language, mind, uh, neuroscience and other topics. Um, 
So that's uh, at Gregory Hickok. And make sure you spell my last name correctly. Everyone wants to spell it wrong. <laughs> it's H-I-C-K-O-K, not H-I-C-K-O-C-K. I, I have messed that one up in the past, but no more. <laughs> um, well, thank you again, Greg. I really appreciate it. I'd love to talk to you again sometime. Of course, anytime. It's been fun. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Well, that is it. Thank you so much for listening or watching this episode of the Thinking Tools podcast from Sense of Mind. Be sure to like and subscribe to the YouTube channel and to subscribe to the podcast. Also consider giving this show a five-star rating on whatever platform you use. And as always, this channel is brought to you by the Diamond Mind Foundation. This episode was produced by me, Andrew Cooper Sansone. Thank you so much for watching. I'll catch you next time.